Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I think we're just about at time, so we might kick this mission off. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for AADC's latest online event in our series. This one is on applying the new disability support pension impairment tables and navigating income support mutual obligations for alcohol and other drugs clients and information for the AOD sector. So thank you so much for coming along this afternoon. We have uh, an audience of several hundred people again this afternoon. So thanks again, everyone, for making the time to be with us here today. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that we're all coming from today. Obviously, that's a lot of different places around Australia since we've got hundreds of people on board. But for me, that's the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land that I'm coming to you from here today in the ACT. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us here today. I'd also like to take this opportunity to affirm AADC's strong support for the voice to parliament because I think that's a very important thing that we need to do at the moment as well. And our organisation is very firmly in support of the voice to parliament. So this event is about ensuring that clinicians working in the alcohol and other drugs sector have a good understanding of how to use the new alcohol and other drug specific table and the related guidelines to provide appropriate supporting documentation for clients applying for the disability support pension. We're also going to be exploring what happens when someone on Centrelink payments enters residential rehabilitation or other treatment programs for alcohol and other drug dependence and the steps that need to be taken to ensure continuity of payments. So there's been quite a number of changes in the landscape in the drug and alcohol sector in relation to these matters in the last little while, specifically um, and particularly in relation to the new AOD specific table for the disability support pension. Sorry, guys, you'll have to excuse me today. I'm just getting over a cold. The beautiful thing about these events online is that you will not catch it from me. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Alex Abel, who is the branch manager of the Carers Disability and Student Payments branch in the Australian Government Department of Social Services. And Alex is going to talk about the disability support pension focusing on the application process and the use of impairment tables. So thanks, Alex. Take it away. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Melanie, and to everyone joining us today. My name is Alexander Abel. I'm the branch manager of the Care, Disability and Student Payments branch in the Department of Social Services. Uh, I'd like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia. We're meeting today on many traditional lands around the country, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay our respects to elders past and present. The Department of Social Services has a variety of responsibilities. One of these is to develop and manage income support policies. We work with other departments and agencies, particularly Services Australia, whose responsibility it is to administer these payments. This includes determining who qualifies for the payment based on legislation. They also provide customer support and service access through their Centrelink program. We also work alongside the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations, whose responsibility includes providing services and support for undertaking employment and other related activities. As with other social security payments, legislation for the Disability Support Pension is contained in the Social Security Act 1991. The legislation allows the Minister to make certain instruments to assist with the delivery of payments. The impairment tables are an instrument that contains the medical assessment criteria for Disability Support Pension and can be found in the Social Security Tables for the Assessment of Work-Related Impairment for Disability Support Pension Determination 2023. 
The disability support pension replaced what was known as the invalid pension in 1991. At the moment, as at June 2023, the number of disability support pension recipients is 770,000. There have been policy changes over the years, but the intent of the payment to provide financial support to people who, because of their disability, are unable to fully support themselves through paid work has not changed since its introduction. However, the qualification criteria, assessment, methodology and instruments have been changed over the years, endeavouring to better achieve the overarching intent. Eligibility for DSP is based on functional impairment and ability to work, and not on diagnosis or specific medical conditions alone. The impact of alcohol and other drug use is accessible for the purposes of claiming the DSP. I will cover more on eligibility criteria later in the presentation. The current disability impairment tables came into effect on the 1st of April 2023, with the previous instrument expiring. The tables are the result of a comprehensive review of the legislative instrument, including extensive stakeholder consultation with disability peak bodies, such as the AADC, disability advocacy groups, medical professionals, and people with lived experience of the DSP process. Table 6 is used to assess the functional impairment of a condition resulting from excessive alcohol use, drugs or other harmful substances, or the misuse of prescription drugs. Some recipients aren't solely eligible through an impairment assessed under Table 6, and have other conditions or impairments assessed under other tables. Assessors consider all conditions impacting a person's functional capacity when determining their eligibility and any subsequent impairment rating. A range of information is taken into account to determine if a person meets the DSP eligibility criteria. Other than claim form, the claimant completes. Supporting evidence about a person's condition is required to enable Services Australia to assess whether the person qualifies for payment. Health professionals play an important role in supporting DSP claims, particularly in providing medical information that enables a person's eligibility to be assessed. The impairment tables indicate who can provide what information for the assessment process. The information includes whether a person has received the necessary diagnosis and associated treatments for their condition. Health professionals may sometimes be contacted to clarify or provide further information to complete the process. A health professional may also be required to provide information as part of a formal request for information or as part of an outcomes review process. This slide provides an overview of the DSP application process. Highlighted in gold are the parts of this process where a health professional may be involved to support a claimant. Services Australia have responsibility for administering the payment, including managing the claims process. A claimant generally initiates the claim process through an online paper or assisted claim, gathering and preparing the required evidence. Details on types of information and evidence to support the claim will be discussed a bit later. Once a claim is lodged, Services Australia conducts a general medical assessment to see if the person meets medical eligibility. Throughout the assessment process, treating health professionals may be contacted by one of Services Australia's health or allied health professionals or government contracted doctors. They'll ask questions to clarify the medical evidence the person provided with the DSP claim. If required, the health professional advisory unit may contact the author of the evidence to provide further medical advice. Most DSP claimants are also referred for a job capacity assessment. This assessment provides expert advice about the functional impact resulting from the claimant's medical condition or conditions on their capacity to work. Claimants found to be eligible at this stage may also be required to attend a disability medical assessment undertaken by a government contracted doctor. The claimant is then notified of the claim outcome. If granted, the person starts receiving payment from the date of their claim. In the event a claim is rejected, the claimant has the right under social security law to ask for a review of the decision within 13 weeks of receiving the outcome. Review of decisions may occur through a hierarchy of authorised review officer, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Federal Court. DSP claimants must meet medical and non-medical requirements to be eligible for payment. 
Claimants must be 16 or older and under 67, which is the age pension age at the time of claiming. They must also meet residency requirements and the income and assets test. Decisions on medical eligibility for DSP claims are informed by medical evidence provided as part of the claim, as well as assessments undertaken by Services Australia, who employ qualified health and adult allied health professionals. As an aside, in certain circumstances, a claim for DSP may be granted manifestly. This means that on the basis of the medical evidence alone, the person is considered eligible for DSP without the need for a job capacity assessment or a disability medical assessment, subject to meeting all other eligibility criteria. Manifest grants are made to a person with a terminal illness with a life expectancy of less than two years, permanent blindness, an intellectual disability where the medical evidence clearly shows an IQ of less than 70, a condition requiring a nursing home level of care, category four AIDS or HIV, or a condition attracts the Department of Veterans Affairs disability pension at the special rate, which is totally and permanently incapacitated. Where a claimant is not manifestly eligible, they must have a diagnosed, reasonably treated and stabilised physical, intellectual or psychiatric impairment assessed at 20 points or more under the impairment tables and have continuing inability to work in the open labour market. The continuing inability to work is met if the claimant is assessed as being unable to work more than 15 hours per week in the open labour market within the next two years and has a severe impairment. A severe impairment is assigned 20 points or more under a single impairment table. If an impairment is not assigned a rating of severe, the claimant must have an actively participated in a program of support to satisfy the continuing inability to work criteria. Generally, a claimant can meet the POS requirement if they have participated in an employment assistance program through a government employment services provider, such as a disability employment services or Australian disability enterprise for at least 18 months within three years prior to a DSP claim. The impairment tables can only be applied if a person has a condition that is diagnosed, reasonably treated and stabilised. The condition has an impact on a person's ability to function, that is, the condition causes an impairment and the resulting impairment is likely to last for more than two years. I'll just step through now what each of those terms means in practice. Diagnosed is an appropriately qualified medical practitioner has made the diagnosis and provides corroborating evidence. Reasonably treated is where a person, where, whether medical treatment or rehabilitation has been undertaken and if the treatment is continuing or planned in the next two years. This includes the nature and effectiveness of past treatment, the expected outcome of current treatment, any plans for further treatment, and whether past, current or future treatment can be considered reasonable. Treatment is considered reasonable if it is readily available, not too expensive, is regularly undertaken and has a high success rate and has a low risk. Stabilised means all reasonable treatment has been applied and further treatment would not result in functional improvement in the next two years. The criteria, in particular the criteria related to treatment and stability of conditions, are interrelated and are not considered in isolation from one another. A condition may also be considered reasonably treated if treatment is ongoing or planned and where it is clear a person's functional capacity is unlikely to significantly improve within the next two years, even with continuing reasonable treatment. A medical condition caused or exacerbated by a diagnosed substance use disorder is not considered reasonably treated and stabilised until the substance use disorder has been reasonably treated and stabilised. For example, where a person has a diagnosed but untreated methamphetamine use disorder and they have also had a mental health condition with symptoms of psychosis. In this scenario, their mental health condition cannot be said to be reasonably treated and stabilised until it is established that their methamphetamine use disorder has been diagnosed, reasonably treated and stabilised. 
where treatment of a substance use disorder is not expected to lead to any significant improvement of another condition, that other condition cannot be, can be considered stabilised. For example, advanced stage cirrhosis of the liver will not be improved by treating a person's substance use disorder. As such, the cirrhosis of the liver may be considered stabilised. Once it has been established that a person's condition is diagnosed, reasonably treated and stabilised, their functional ability is assessed under the impairment tables. This assessment determines the level of functional impact resulting from a person's impairment and assigns an impairment rating for the identified level of impact. The 15 impairment tables are function-based rather than condition or diagnosis-based. The impairment tables describe functional activities, abilities and symptoms and limitations that are taken into consideration when assessing the level of impact of a person's impairment. To select an appropriate table, the loss of function is first identified and then the appropriate table related to the function affected is chosen. The most appropriate impairment rating is considered and applied. It is important to note that any number of conditions does not always correspond to the number of impairments. A single condition may result in multiple functional impairments. In that case, these impairments are to be assessed on all relevant tables. Where two or more conditions have common functional impacts, the overall impacts of the condition are assessed under a single table relevant to that function. A single impairment rating reflecting the overall impact on the affected function is assigned on that impairment table because only one impairment rating can be assigned from the same table. Comorbidities, as well as episodic and fluctuating conditions, can also be assessed under the tables, with consideration given to the frequency, duration and severity given to those conditions. It is important to keep in mind that two individuals with the same condition may not necessarily have the same impairment rating assigned, even though they share the same diagnosis. Some of you may recall previous announcements in the 2017-18 budget that Table 6 would be removed and early exposure drafts of the tables as part of consultations reflected this announcement. During our consultation process, stakeholders raised concerns that the potential removal of Table 6 would decrease visibility of the functional impact of alcohol and other drugs for assessment, as well as reinforcing stigma for the cohort. The government announced in the 2023 budget that the measure to remove Table 6 would not proceed. With Table 6 remaining in place, the department consulted and collaborated with stakeholders, including AADC, to update Table 6 and relevant guidance material to ensure the functional impacts relating to alcohol, drug and other substance misuse are recognised and captured in Table 6, consistent with the approach across the rest of the impairment tables. This table is used for the functional, assess functional impact of the condition resulting from excessive use of alcohol, drugs or other harmful substances, such as glue or petrol, or the misuse of prescription drugs. Conditions causing impairment commonly assessed under Table 6 include, but are not limited to, alcohol and various illicit drug use disorders, various inhalant use disorders, and various prescription drug use disorders. Long-term impacts resulting from previous alcohol, drug or other substance use are not assessed under Table 6, but under more appropriate tables depending on the functional impact. These may include neurological or cognitive impairment, cirrhosis or other chronic liver disease, cardiomyopathy and pancreatitis or other complications of organ damage. Each level of functional impact has a corresponding rating expressed in points in accordance with a generic scale adapted from the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health. The rating system is standardised across the tables as shown on the slide. The descriptors in each table follow an incremental hierarchy expressed, among other things, by the use of terms indicating increasing levels of functional impact in performing certain activities. 
A large-scale review of the impairment tables was conducted by an advisory committee in 2011, which clarified the distinction between the increments and provided qualifiers. No, meaning none, absent or negligible. Mild, meaning slight or low. Moderate, meaning medium or fair. Severe, meaning higher extreme. And what was previously known as complete impairment, meaning total. The determination of the descriptor for a person's impairment level is based on available medical evidence, including medical history, investigation, results and clinical findings. An assessment starts by considering descriptors for zero points, and if the person has more than low or minimal functional impact, the next descriptor is considered until the appropriate one is chosen. The appropriate impairment rating for a person's circumstances is one for which all the required descriptors are met, and it is determined the person does not meet all required descriptors for the next level. To get an idea of the specific descriptors and criteria, here on the slide is table six in a horizontal form. There is a lot more detail in the legislative instrument, which also provides examples and notes under each descriptor to assist assessors in applying the most appropriate points. It is important to note that the examples are illustrative only and are not exhaustive or binding. It is the criteria of the descriptors themselves that is considered. As you can see here, while the five-point impairment rating requires claimants to meet at least one descriptor, the other ratings require the claimant to meet at least three of the descriptors. A key part of the DSP claims, process, claims assessment process is the evidence provided to support an application. Understanding what evidence is acceptable and what information to provide with the claim is very important. It is not enough to state that a condition is diagnosed, treated and stabilised by a qualified medical practitioner without corroborating medical evidence. As mentioned earlier, an appropriately qualified medical practitioner must provide the diagnosis for the condition. For Table 6, this may include a GP or a medical specialist, which includes an addiction medicine specialist or a psychiatrist with experience in diagnosis of substance use disorders. Corroborating evidence includes medical and non-medical evidence and must contain sufficient information to determine whether the requirement for diagnosis, reasonable treatment and stabilisation has been met. This information is a primary source to determine if the impairment tables can be applied, the impact of an impairment and what rating to assign. Medical evidence must include information about diagnosis, past, current and future treatment, as well as prognosis for the condition. The evidence must also include sufficient information on the condition's impact on the claimant and their ability to function. A claimant's self-report of symptoms may only be relied upon if there is corroborating medical evidence to support it. Similarly, information provided by carers and support people may be considered as corroborating evidence if it is consistent with available medical evidence. In some cases, you may be asked to provide further evidence of the, for the purposes of a review. For example, if a report, document or other material contains unclear terminology or less clarity. This additional evidence must be lodged by the claimant within the 13-week review period after reviewing a decision on their DSP claim. Additional evidence provided after the 13-week period can only be considered if it shows they were qualified at the date of the original decision. The claimant may be entitled to back payment from the date of claim if the review determines they are eligible. Where a person was not eligible at the time of claim but has new evidence to show eligibility from a later date, outside of the 13-week review period, they would require a new claim. There are several resources available for more information and further guidance on DSP, including the application of Table 6 and the evidence required to support a claim. The Social Security Guide assists the administration of social policy law. Relating to DSP, the guide provides further guidance on relevant policy regarding DSP qualification and the application of the impairment tables. 
The Services Australia website includes a wide array of pages providing information on the DSP support pension and the process to claim. These are set up as guided experience for both claimants and health professionals. On the website, there are a number of forms and resources, including the medical evidence checklist for DSP, that may assist claimants and health professionals alike with information on DSP. Additionally, Services Australia managed a targeted website for health professionals. Historically, the website has been used in relation to Medicare. It hosts training modules for health professionals to support their interactions with Services Australia. Included on this website is an infographic to assist with DSP claims. I hope this session has been provided, have provided you with some insights of the DSP claim process and how you as health professionals may be able to assist your clients with evidence requirements. I will now hand back to Melanie and look forward to your questions in the Q&A session. Thank you all for attending today and for all being involved in the discussion. If you have any further questions that may, we may not have covered in today um, regarding Table 6 or DSP policy more generally, please email the address on this slide. Thank you again for attending and to the AADC for organising and hosting the event. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alex. I think that's been really helpful. And just for a few of you who've been giving me some questions in the Q&A already, yes, we will make Alex's slides available on the AADC website after this event. We're also going to be recording the event and we will pop that recording up on the AADC website on the events page after this as well. So you can go there afterwards or direct your colleagues there to watch the recording of this event and to find other resources that might be of assistance. So now that I've stopped having a coughing fit, in terms of housekeeping, please punch your questions into the Q&A. We won't take questions after each presentation, but we will direct them to the relevant panellists when we get to the panel session. So do not use the chat function, please use the Q&A function and your questions will be directed to the panellists after the presentations. So Alex may have to run away on us because he's a very busy man today, but we will have with us on the panel Nathan Dean, who is the Director of the Carers and Disability Payments Policy Section, and Sarah Morris, who is the Assistant Director of the Disability Support Pension Project Section in DSS. And they are more than capable of answering any questions in relation to Alex's presentation if he needs to leave us this afternoon. So... In the meantime, I would like to introduce our next speakers. We have a double header coming up here from DUA. Andrew Wright is the Director of Mutual Obligation Compliance and Policy, and Dan Lawsovic is the Director of Assessments and Mutual Obligations. Both of them are from the Australian Government Department of Employment and Workplace Relations, or DUA. So thank you so much, Andrew and Dan, for coming along this afternoon. We understand as an audience that these, these policy issues that we're talking about for the AOD sector sit across a range of government agencies in terms of responsibility. And we're really, really grateful that you guys have brought your colleagues along so that we can have a panel session that answers any possible questions that anyone might have. So thanks so much to Andrew and Dan, and please take it away. Uh, thanks, Melanie. Um, as Melanie mentioned, uh, we'll be uh, Andrew and I will be covering um, mutual obligation requirements today um, and the compliance arrangements ar around uh, those requirements, um, uh, which are both, uh, are both the responsibility of um, our department, the Department of uh, Employment and Workplace Relations. Um, I'll start off by covering uh, briefly the, the criteria for receiving unemployment payments. So in order to receive unemployment payments, uh, job seekers or individuals are, are generally, uh, they generally need to meet mutual obligation requirements. And the payments that 
uh, this applies to a job seeker payment, uh, youth allowance when it's paid to uh, uh, job seekers. You, you can get youth allowance um, as, a, as a student or an apprentice, but uh, they have different requirements for those payments. Uh, parenting payment once the youngest child um, turns six years of age. Um, and special benefit um, when it's paid under in unemployment payment conditions. Um, job seekers, in order to receive those payments, uh, they, they generally need to meet other um, criteria, such as uh, means testing. Um, Services Australia administers the payments, um, uh, the payment el eligibility, and generally um, employment services providers, um, such as uh, Workforce Australia providers or disability employment services, uh, administer uh, mutual obligation requirements. Uh, I've, excuse me, sorry, I, I may not be sharing my screen. Dan, if you just want to um, click the share screen button at the bottom of the Zoom window and then... My apologies. Uh, is that visible now? Not yet. Sorry, Dan. Apologies for the technical um, difficulties. Just on the bottom of your Zoom um, screen, you've got the share screen button. If you hit that, that'll uh, pop up with a few options about what you want to share, and then you can just select the right window and click share. Dan, did you want me to kick on while um uh, while you look up the sh sharing? Yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind um uh, sharing the presentation, I I did um, click share and um, selected the screen, but it's not working for some reason. Yeah, I think our IT system might be blocking it, so. Um, maybe we should just kick on and we can share the presentation afterwards and, and just go from there. Okay, uh, yes, uh, apologies again for, for the technical difficulties. Um, hopefully you can still uh, follow um, the presentation with me just speaking. Uh, uh, so... Uh, so in terms of mutual obligation requirements, um, so claimants uh, of unemployment uh, payments um, 
uh, are generally required to engage with employment services before they can start receiving payment. Uh, there are some exceptions to this, and that's generally if um, if the person at that time isn't able to um, uh, to um, comply with mutual obligation requirements, or if they're not required at that time to engage with employment services. Um, the requirements are set out in a job plan, which is uh, agreed by the by the job seeker, um, and the requirements may be different depending on the type of employment service that the, the person is referred to. Uh, for those participating in Workforce Australia, um, requirements generally include um, meeting a monthly points target or 100 points per month. And they do this by applying for jobs <coughs> and they're credited um, uh, points for applying for those jobs and, and also for participating in, in activities um, to improve their, their employment prospects. Uh, so with Workforce Australia, there are two main uh, well, there are two services that there's one uh, for people who are considered uh, job ready or assessed as um, having minimal barriers to employment. Um, and these people generally refer to Workforce Australia online where they self-manage their requirements. Um, and for those who have, um, uh, have barriers to employment, um, they're referred to a, a Workforce Australia services provider to assist them with addressing those barriers. Um, uh, for those in disability employment services, uh, participants um, generally apply for up to 20 jobs per month and the number of jobs they need to apply for can be adjusted to, um, to their individual circumstances um, and also uh, to participate in activities that, that uh, they agree to with their provider. Um, job seekers are, are generally required to um, attend um, appointments with the employment services provider, um, regular appointments, um, except those who are self-managing Workforce Australia online. Um, all job seekers, um, regardless of which program they're in, um, they're required to accept and commence uh, suitable paid work when it's offered. And I'll hand over now to, to Andrew, who will um, talk about uh, the compliance arrangements. Have one mute. Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, so yeah, we wanted to talk a bit about the um, compliance arrangements, which um, are on slide four, now that we've uh, got the IT system. Um, so broadly, um, we wanted to talk to this a little bit because there's sometimes a perception that uh, if you don't meet a mutual obligation requirement, penalties uh, immediately apply, uh, which is, is not the case. There's quite a, a number of, of safeguards in place to make sure that a uh, person's requirements are appropriate for their circumstances before, um, before any penalties apply. So generally, what happens if a person doesn't meet a, a mutual obligation requirement, um, they're given two business days to um, either explain why they didn't meet the requirement, and if there's a, a good reason, then it's a, a valid reason, uh, nothing occurs. And if a person doesn't have a valid reason or some reason can't make contact, their payment is temporarily put on hold, uh, and generally um, they would accrue a um, uh, a demerit. Following uh, Q1 
accumulation of, of three demerits. Uh, so that's three instances of non-compliance without good reasons. Uh, there's an assessment done by um, generally the person's provider, if they're with a, an employment service provider, uh, or the digital services contact center, if, as Dan mentioned, somebody being uh, managed by um, uh, digital services. Um, and the purpose of that assessment is really to have a look at someone's requirements. Are they appropriate? Is there anything that they haven't disclosed? Um, you know, do requirements need to be adjusted so that they're achievable for the person's individual circumstances? Um, if the person is found that that assessment not to be capable, then all the compliance history is, is wiped. They basically go back to the, the start of the process. Uh, if, however, they're found to be uh, able to meet their requirements but um, unwilling, uh, then they are uh, progressed through the system. If they accumulate another two demerits, then there's a uh, subsequent assessment by uh, Services Australia or Centrelink. Um, and again, if they're not capable, if there's anything new to disclose, they go back to the start of the process. Um, if they are found capable, then they enter what's referred to as the penalty zone. And it's only after that point, so generally, um, a person uh, would have committed five failures by this point without a valid reason. Uh, it's only after that point that subsequent failures result in lasting financial penalties. Uh, so it, it is uh, the design of all compliance arrangements are very much uh, designed to um, be focused at those persistently and deliberately uh, non-compliant. Um, cool. Uh, so now I think we should be on slide five. Uh, just about um, if job seekers have difficulty meeting their requirements. So as Dan mentioned, um, requirements should be uh, appropriate and achievable for a person's individual circumstances, and they can and must be adjusted if they are not. Uh, the legislation is pretty explicit that, um, I'm sorry, that's the Social Security Administration Act, um, that a range of factors must be considered in determining someone's uh, requirements. That includes consideration of health conditions, uh, transport opportunities available, local labour market, uh, caring responsibilities, uh, and a range of, of other factors. And so requirements uh, kind of must be adjusted. If a person is, is temporarily unable to meet any requirements at all, uh, for instance, if they um, become sick uh, or in, a, in an accident, uh, major personal crisis, become homeless, domestic violence, uh, a range of circumstances that impact their ability to meet requirements, they can apply to Centrelink for an exemption from requirements. Uh, generally, those exemptions last for 13 weeks, although they can be um, extended and, and regranted uh, for as long as the circumstance continues for um, you know, those temporary circumstances. Uh, and during that period, as I say, no, can't speak, um, people have no requirements at all. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm just seeing the thing that I should speak a bit louder. Uh, oops, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully I subconsciously got louder, but we'll, um, we'll have to see. Uh, 
So um, there are though some differences when it comes to um, drug and alcohol related conditions. In 2018, the um, then government changed the Social Security Act as it was then, now Social Security Administration Act, um, so that a person could not be granted uh, an exemption uh, if the reason for the exemption was wholly or predominantly due to drug or alcohol misuse. Uh, similarly, there's some changes to legislative instruments that mean that when a um, person is being assessed for a uh, whether or not a penalty should apply, uh, they cannot have a reasonable excuse if they've previously met, uh, so previously failed to um, meet a requirement for a reason due to drug or alcohol misuse, and then subsequently failed to participate in um, available drug and alcohol treatment uh, that was appropriate for their circumstances. There are a range of exemptions to that criteria. For instance, if treatment is not available, if treatment is not, um, not appropriate for their circumstances, uh, if they have um, uh, tried to participate in treatment and it hasn't uh, provided significant benefit, all those circumstances then uh, reasonable excuse can continue to be assessed uh, as previously. And it is a criteria that um, in all but that particular circumstance where they've refused to participate in available and appropriate treatment that uh, drug and alcohol conditions, uh, other medical conditions, um, impact of homelessness, language literacy, numeracy, and a range of other specified conditions must be considered by decision makers. Cool. And moving on to, um, oh, I was just talking about removal of exemptions. Uh, but a crucial thing, um, sorry, that I didn't talk about with the removal of exemptions is that um, participation in treatment uh, can be counted towards requirements and also um, uh, other requirements can be lowered uh, if a person can't meet them because of the impact of a, um, a drug and alcohol condition. Uh, and I'll hand back over to Dan to talk about uh, ESATs. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, so employment services assessments. Um, when, uh, when a job seeker uh, discloses that they have um, a, a medical condition <clears throat> or a disability or, or an injury that impacts their, their ability to um, uh, uh, their ability to work, um, they, they may be referred for an employment services assessment. Um, uh, the, these ESATs, uh, they're conducted by the same um, health and allied health professionals who, who also, um, at Services Australia, who also conduct the job capacity assessments for DSP purposes. Um, so where, when they disclose that they have uh, medium to long term, so it, anything really that lasts more than, uh, more than three months or 13 weeks um, 
impacting their ability to work uh, that will undergo this um, this assessment. And there are two purposes. Uh, one is to determine the, the most appropriate uh, employment service type, uh, so that you know, should they go to disability employment services or to Workforce Australia um, services. Um, medical evidence uh, generally must must be provided, um, but a key difference between uh, the assessments for DSP and for mutual obligations and employment services purposes, all medical conditions um, are assessed, not just those that are, that are fully uh, treated, diagnosed and stabilised. Uh, as a result of um, an employment services assessment, um, they may be assessed as having uh, a partial capacity to work. Um, they, uh, which is uh, work capacity of less than 30 hours per, um, per week. Um, or they might well, they might be uh, assessed as having a temporary reduced work capacity. So a partial capacity to work assessment is is ongoing. Um, uh, and a temporary reduced uh, work capacity would be for a, um, uh, a period of less than two years. Um, and they may be um, assessed as having this temporary um, reduced work capacity in, in order to um, undertake uh, uh, treatment, for example. Um, job seekers with a reduced um, work capacity have reduced mutual oblig obligation requirements. So, for example, those in Workforce Australia, um, uh, their points target will be automatically reduced uh, from 100 to 60. Um, and that can be reduced further depending on um, other uh, other things that might be, may be impacting their, their um, ability to, uh, to meet those requirements. Um, if, uh, if a person is assessed as having a reduced work capacity of less than 15 hours a week, uh, then they generally become Centrelink managed, uh, which means they, they agree to a job plan with Centrelink. Um, they're not required to uh, um, uh, participate in employment services. Um, uh, the only requirement is to attend the participation interview uh, quarterly with, with Services Australia. I think Andrew's uh, covered uh, re reasonable ex excuse. Uh, I'll, I'll just um, uh, go on now to talk about um, uh, job seekers in, in residential rehabilitation. So where, where a person enters um, drug or alcohol um, uh, residential rehabilitation, they're not required to meet um, the requirements uh, set out in their job plan. Um, so these, these are, uh, the requirements have to be adjusted um, and the adjustments are made by their employment services provider um, or in the case of people who are self-managing in Workforce Australia online, um, the, the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations Digital uh, Contact Service Centre. Uh, services Australia is not involved in um, uh, in the adjustment of their requirements um, because it's it's not an exemption. So Services Australia would, um, uh, for those who are 
may be eligible for an exemption. It's, it's Service Australia that has the delegation to apply those exemptions, to assess and apply them. Um, but in the, in the case of people going to residential rehab, uh, rather than an exemption, their, their requirements are reduced to, to nil um, while they're in, um, uh, in the facility. Um, so uh, if, uh, if the person is unable once they enter uh, to contact uh, their provider or the digital services contact centre, uh, facilities have implied authority to contact um, uh, either the provider or the contact centre uh, on their behalf um, to let them know uh, when they entered and and um, uh, once they're released, um, if they could also contact to, to provide that information. Uh, if the person is unable to do them, uh, that themselves. Um, so essentially, uh, like I said, while, while they're in, in the rehab facility, they shouldn't have any requirements other, other than to participate in, in the rehabilitation process. Uh, and that's, uh, that's about um, all we have uh, for today. Thank you very much and apologies for the te technical difficulties. Hopefully, um, it was an informative session. No, that was great, you guys. And thank you for winging it with the tech difficulties. Just for our audience that is um, predominantly in the NGO sector, we have an issue with um, the government IT systems where they don't like Zoom. So government IT systems prefer um, either Teams or WebEx. We've gone Zoom because that's what the majority of the NGO sector uses. But just so you know, the IT systems in government don't like Zoom. And so we're having an issue with the IT systems blocking um, access to some things. So it's not that Andrew and Dan don't know how to use this technology. They totally know how to do a PowerPoint presentation usually, but they're being thwarted by their um, IT systems there. So thank you guys for winging it. And thank you, Brett, our um, AV guy, who has just kind of helped us to show the slides um, as we freeformed it on that one. So what we will do as well, just reminding you guys, we will share these um, presentations online afterwards. So if there is a particular slide that you couldn't see, it was a bit small or it wasn't up for long enough, or we didn't get to it because of the tech difficulties, you will be able to look at these presentations online afterwards. But thank you, Andrew and Dan. That must have been um, a scary experience with the tech there. I totally appreciate. So thank you for bearing with us on that. Um, what we are going to do now is throw to our panel session. And we do have some questions coming in for the audience. And thank you, um, everyone, for starting to punch those in. I can see that you can work the Q&A um, bit here. That's good. So everyone who has a question on any of those presentations so far, please start punching those into the Q&A and we will get to those. Um, in the meantime, what I would like to do, though, is introduce our panellists and just give the panellists an opportunity to respond to the presentation so far and also for them to add any other information, particularly the government people, to add any other useful information that they think provides something in addition to the, the presentations that we've got. So we have lost Alex. Um, he hasn't been able to stay with us for the panel session, but we do have Nathan Dean, who is the Director of Carers and Disability Payments Policy Section, and Sarah Morris, who is the Assistant Director of the Disability Support Pension Project Section at DSS, available here um, to answer questions about Alex's presentation. And Nathan and or Sarah, I'll let you guys decide who's best one to, to um, answer my first question on this. I just think it's worth explaining a little bit more to the audience around the 20 points concept, 
because I know that's something that a number of clinicians have raised with me has been difficult for them to wrap their head around previously. So it's about when you saw that presentation and you see that the client has to get to 20 points, they need to get to 20 points on a single table um, to be able to get to that. Is it significantly impaired? Can you talk us through, Nathan or Sarah, that point system and what that means in terms of the way that clinicians need to use that to support an application? Nathan or Sarah, whoever you reckon is best placed to answer this one, go your hardest. I can see you conversing there in the background. Good on you. Um, pick a path. We don't mind. Whoever would like to answer that one, please do. And don't forget to unmute yourself when you answer that question as well, please. Melanie, can you please repeat that? Yeah, so the question, my first question was around that idea of 20 points in a single table. So in the presentation that Alex gave, it talked about the different impairment tables and the thresholds that needed to be got to, the five points, the 10 points, the 20 points. My understanding is, is that to get to a threshold for the DSP, you need to get to that 20 point mark. But is it the case that you need to get 20 points off a single table? Or for people with multiple disabilities, can you get to the 20 points off multiple disabilities? How does that point system work is the question. So um, to qualify for DSP, you need 20 points. Um, if you obtain 20 points across one table, that qualifies as a severe impairment and you qualify for DSP if you're assessed as being um, CITW, continuing inability to work. Um, you can qualify for DSP um, across, if you achieve 20 points across multiple tables, um, however, you do have to undertake uh, a program of support before you are uh, uh, eligible for the payment. Awesome. Thank you. And we will make Alex's slides available on the website as well, because I think that provides some important clarification too. And I note that some of that text was a bit small for people to be able to see. So we will do that as well. Um, Nathan and Sarah, was there anything else, any other points that Alex made that you wanted to underline or highlight in response to that presentation? Yeah, Melanie, just one point. Um, off the back of Alex's presentation um, in relation to Table 6, I'd probably just make the point that um, eligibility criteria for DSP, including the impairment tables, have been designed to be as fair as possible. And um, all claimants are assessed based on their functional capacity, not based on their use of drugs or alcohol. Cool. Thank you. Did Sarah have anything that she'd like to add or can we go on to our Dua colleagues? Uh, no, probably just to um, reiterate what will be seen at the end of Alex's slides, um, if there are any questions that pop up outside of this session, um, please feel free to email us at the 
uh, email address provided. Excellent. Thank you. Now, Andrew and Dan, you guys had a hard time with the tech there. You probably were a little bit distracted by that. Is there Are there any other key points that you would like to highlight in your presentation? Yeah, thanks, Molly. I think um, probably the, the key, uh, key takeaway is that uh, it is employment services providers and the digital services contact center who are responsible for setting requirements and who any um, uh, drug and alcohol treatment providers uh, should contact in terms of uh, having people's requirements adjusted rather than Centrelink who um, will just refer people back to providers uh, in the case of drug and alcohol uh, treatment issues because they cannot grant those exemptions as we talked about. Dan, you got anything you want to add? Uh, just that we've 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 recently had um, some feedback that um, there's a bit of confusion from both um, uh, from employment services providers uh, in general um, about uh, what should happen in these circumstances um, when someone does go into residential rehabilitation. So uh, we're looking at uh, reinforcing some of that mes messaging to to the providers. That's really great because I note that a number of the questions I'm looking at that are starting to come in from the audience are about that, about those third-party providers and they're not necessarily adhering to what was on your slide. So it's great to hear that that comms is going to be happening as well. Um, I might throw now to Donald. Um, Donald Walters is the Assistant Director of Dis the Disability Pension and Parenting Payments Branch. And we've also got Jenny Rohan, who is the Assistant Director and also a Clinical Psychologist of Assessment Services at the Smart Centre Operations Division in Services Australia. Donald, I might throw to you first and then we'll throw to Jenny. What would you like to add um, in terms of the content of those presentations or any key messages from Services Australia? Yeah, no, thanks very much, Melanie. And can you just, if you can hear me okay? Um, yeah, good. Um, this is my on my iPhone and yes, I... I do apologise to the audience for our lack of compatibility with Zoom. Um, but anyway, it's working so far. Um, look, a couple of um, points. Is, and I'm just in the disability sport pension space. Um, it's um, There's a really great detail in the um, presentation about the eligibility requirements. Um, uh, I think it important, it's um, useful to understand that, but we do not expect that people applying for DSP have to understand that detail. <clears throat> I mean, that's it, it's it's there. It, it's publicly available if people need to see it. Um, but um, the, the main thing is that if, if a person, for any reason, can't work, um, they the main thing is they, they have to put a claim in, <clears throat> but also just provide medical evidence about uh, about the <clears throat> how their condition. The, the, the conditions that most affect their work capacity. And so you don't have to tailor that around a particular table. You just have to say, well, if you've got a mental health condition, if you're uh, impacted by um, current substance abuse um, condition or any anything else, tell us about that circumstance and, as, and get as much <clears throat> detail as uh, you can in the medical evidence when you lodge your claim. So I think that that's an important takeaway. It's, uh, I think, very, there are people who are interested in the detail, but you don't have to go and memorise that or do homework on that. And basically, the information about claiming is on our website. <clears throat> um, so how to claim online, that paper is, as was uh, covered. And just, just another point as well is the, um, I think the, 
Um, we were in this presentation, we're talking about people claiming DSP and also job seekers. And that's a Dan and um, <clears throat> Andrew were talking about typically people receiving job seeker payment. Um, they may be the same people. <clears throat> so you may have a person on job seeker payment who uh, wants to test their eligibility for DSP. And those um, they can do that at any time. Um, while the, and we get a lot of people claiming are currently already on payment too. So they're not mutually exclusive. Mm. So we, we just, if they're applying for DSP, we look at the DSP rules mm. um, when we're uh, assessing that claim. So, yeah. Thanks, Donald. That's great. And I think, Jenny, you've probably got um, some different perspective to add being a psychologist. Are there any tips that you've got for cl clinicians in the audience about things they need to keep in mind? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Um, thanks, everyone. So I'm from the Assessment Services branch um, within Centrelink Services Australia, and thanks, Donald, for your explanation of, of things too. Um, I just wanted to make a few points, if I could. So our team of allied health professionals refer to all of the medical evidence that's made available for every DSP applicant, and we're really guided by that evidence in the application of the impairment tables, which we've heard about today already. Obviously, we're not the experts on the patient. That's the person's treating health professional and their treating team. And that's why the evidence provided is so crucial for our assessment and in the application of the tables. Um, in the earlier presentation, we saw that there might be times where our allied health professional assessors may need to discuss an individual's functioning treatment prognosis with, um, with yourselves, the specialists and allied health staff involved with, with, um, with your client. And so we do appreciate your time in speaking to us when that's required. And just to let you know, too, that we've got internal processes to make sure that all applicants are assessed appropriately to make sure that we're we're not missing things. So we we really pride ourselves in making sure, if you like, that no stone is unturned with checking somebody's eligibility. So I really wanted to make that point today too, and um, we definitely appreciate your expertise with your clients in helping us make um, those decisions around applications for the for the tables. Thanks, Melanie. Awesome. Thanks, Jenny. And I think that's really helpful too for people to understand how the processes work behind the scenes. So thank you for giving us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, if you will, there. Um, I'd like to introduce now Dr. Craig Rogers, who is a Senior Staff Specialist for Addiction Medicine at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Craig is also the President-Elect of the Australasian Professional Society on Alcohol and Other Drugs. And just so you know, um, Alex referred to the development of the AOD table in particular, and Craig was part of the working group that provided the track changes on that table um, that gave us the table that we have today. So first of all, we were very, very delighted um, and thankful to the Minister for deciding to keep the AOD specific table in, in the impairment tables for the DSP. Um, and very thankful to Craig for his expertise in helping us to work with our colleagues to redraft that as well. So thanks, Craig, for all your hard work up until now. And I guess what I'd really like you to share, Craig, is some of the stories that you had. I mean, obviously, we've worked hard to try and change things moving forward. But I know as part of the consultation 
questions you had talked specifically to DSS around some of the frustrations and challenges you'd had previously in getting clients of yours onto the DSP and getting their applications um, considered favourably. Do you want to maybe run through a case study of that and so our colleagues could you know, talk about how things might be different going forward in the future or tips and tricks for how we might do things differently as clinicians in terms of those applications? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> as, as you know, uh, we've discussed, I mean, I, I must say I find the whole DSP process extremely frustrating and would rather not get involved in it if I didn't have to. Um, look, I really love supporting clients in it um but it becomes sort of overwhelming um for people i mean particularly when they get refused and we've got to reapply and you know there are some people who um i guess drug and alcohol might be one issue that they have but with multiple other issues they they don't sort of quite have enough points in each area and but you know they've never worked in their life and they're now 40 and probably never going to and so getting them over the line is a real struggle and I must say I, I have used the tables to try and address the um, criteria in them to make it a little bit clearer because often you know what if you just write a simple letter it's not enough I mean you've really got to give better evidence to help support them to get over the line um, so having having the tables is, is useful but Look, you know, it took me years to find those tables. There was a lovely social worker who found it for me. I wouldn't have had a clue where they were as a, a practitioner generally. And um, as a GP, you just don't have time to look up any of those sorts of things. Um, a lot of the clients that we see now in drug and alcohol don't have a GP. Um, GPs are much more um, uh, difficult to access for clients with the lack of bulk billing. So it often does come down to drug and alcohol services. And then also a lot of the... Um, I guess disability claims want evidence from a specialist, whether it be drug and alcohol or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So, you know, a simple letter from a GP may not be sufficient evidence. Um, so, so I think they're difficulties for for people. I mean, I don't know if I'm the only doctor on the pa panel. I mean, Hester was supposed to be here. I'm not sure if she's here. Um, but look, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's incredibly wonderful when somebody gets the DSP. I mean, it makes a huge difference to their to their life. Um, uh, that little bit of extra money, um, and so that's great for their mental health well being. But I, I do find it a struggle and a frustrating process. Um, Before we throw to our colleagues to respond to that, Craig, I might just throw to Tony Eaches now. Tony has replaced Hester, who had some clinical. She's in Daniloquin um, delivering services. She's had to pike out on us at the last minute because she's got a clinic going and hasn't managed to escape. And Tony is the operations manager and deputy CEO of Goldbridge Rehabilitation Services in Queensland. And so Tony brings that perspective as a manager um, of a rehabilitation service in terms of the sorts of frustrations that you've talked about. Tony, has that been, is what Craig talking about, has that been an experience that you've you've had as well in terms of how residential services are able to interact with the system? Um, there's a few points, I suppose. I guess um, we're not necessarily, and I don't believe we can be the medical specialist. Mm if a client wants to apply for the DSP because we're the treatment facility and we need to be the treatment team. And once you start entering into that and you're doing that for the client and then they get a no, 
that just breaks our rapport and, our, and the trust with the client because, you know, they don't trust Centrelink and we're a part of that system. So that's not necessarily helpful. Of course, we do help them. But, you know, it's it's not ideal because we're trying to treat them for their AOD use. Um, obviously, we're dual diagnosis, but, um, you know, we're getting involved in, in other parts that shouldn't we shouldn't need to. Um and I guess, and you know, it does it, it sort of spoils the, that um, therapeutic relationship when then they come back and it's like, no, and it's like, well, you didn't support me. We need to focus on the treatment and what we're doing and not get caught up in the, you know, the center link and, and stuff like that. I guess the other side of it from an organizational point of view, we are reliant on user pay. Yes, we get funding, um, we get Queensland Health Funding, we get Commonwealth Health Funding, but we're also reliant on user pay. Users have to pay for the service. Um, what we get funded through the government doesn't cover all our costs to, to deliver the service. So when people are having trouble either getting Centrelink, so it's a barrier to entering treatment or they enter treatment, they may have an exemption for you know a small period and then suddenly it gets stopped. You know, that affects our service, that's payments, because we're not then going to discharge the clients. I'm sorry, your Centrelink didn't come in, you have to go. We're not going to do that. We keep the person, but then, you know, it's a big chunk that we're not getting paid and that affects our service. Um, so, yeah, there's a few different aspects. I think there's some really interesting points there. Um, Rebecca, before I come to you, we might just put a pin in it and take a few of those before we move forward. I think that's an interesting point you make, Tony, about the impact on the therapeutic relationship. And I'd be interested in Jenny's take on that, um, given her position as well, in that, I mean, it's interesting, and I'm sure it's interesting for the government people as well, that for clients, we're all part of the system that is problematic. Like they don't necessarily differentiate government from non-government or, you know, different government agencies or NGO clinicians from government clinicians, it's that life is hard and the pathway to get to the answer is hard. So I think that's an important point. And Jenny, I might ask you to respond to that one. But also, I take the point that Tony's making as well, that people's Centrelink payments do contribute to their treatment. So it is important that we find a way through um, so that treatment services can communicate that people are engaging in treatment so they can continue to get their payments. That's important. And I'd also be interested in a response from our DSS colleagues around the points that Craig made and whether you think the tweaking to the new tables will actually make it better. So I think, Jenny, we might start with you about therapeutic relationship and then we might head over to DSS and your colleagues to throw their two bobs worth in as well um, before we go to Rebecca for her reflections on the presentations. So oh, look, thank you, Melanie. Um, really excellent points, Tony. And we we do hear that. We hear that from specialists. We hear that from GPs that, you know, therapeutic relationships, people are concerned about, about letting Centrelink know about restrictions people have, um, I think the key thing for us is we're, we're relying upon your opinion in terms of prognostic things. We, we don't know. And that's another part of the discussion that has, has to happen around how ongoing the condition is, whether it has been reasonably treated. And we're not, um, we're, we are sort of looking for your advice around those, those answers. Um, certainly, 
look, I'm not sure of the nature of your service or, or those sorts of ongoing relationships that you have, but I guess, you know, if, if I was in similar shoes to yourself, I'd potentially be saying, look, um, you could comment about treatment participated in to date. You could comment around their level of functioning and what you might anticipate the future might, might look like with treatment. But certainly it, it, it's a, it's a, point that gets raised with us by numerous practitioners but at the end of the day you're not responsible for the legislation around the criteria and the eligibility and again when it's really helpful we 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 see great outcomes for for clients uh, shared clients that really aren't aren't appropriately you know or inappropriate to be on something like a youth allowance or a job um you know a job related mutual obligation payment, DSP really is um, is the best option for them. And usually they're, they're the clients that aren't new to treatment. They've usually been in multiple times, those sorts of things. So, but again, it is a quandary. I appreciate that practitioners experience that. And again, we, we can't really answer those questions around eligibility without liaison from you as experts. So it, yeah, it's it's twofold, absolutely. Before we go to the next part of that with our DSS and Dua colleagues, I just want to acknowledge that communications is coming up as a big thing in the questions online as well in terms of clarity. And I think, you know, Craig's point was we're clinicians, we're trying to do clinical work, we don't have time to Google where all these forms and stuff are and the policies and the tables and the bloody blah, blah. So I think we might just take as a given that we as a sector and as government agencies as well probably need to do a bit better in terms of the visibility and comms on how people engage with the process. And I think that's one of the important points that in our conversations leading up to this event, we're very committed to working with our government colleagues around making, creating further clarity in terms of these government processes. I might throw to our DSS colleagues now though and talk specifically around the new AOD table and whether you think that will be better or worse than the previous one in terms of being user-friendly for clinicians and how you think that is. I mean, we hope it's better. We put track changes on it. <laughs> um, well, you set me up there, Mel. Um, I just wanted to thank yourself um, and Craig and anyone else on the session who, um, you know, participated in the review and had feedback on the table itself. Um, so key changes made to Table 6 were made to better represent the functional impacts experienced by people who do have um, substance use uh, conditions. Um, largely, the feedback that we've received in regards to the changes to that particular table have been positive. Um, so time will tell how, how that plays out um, as it stays in place for the next 10 years. Um, but we, we think we're on the right track with, with the changes that have been made. Thanks, mate, and thank you for all your work. You have been part of this since, certainly since I started the conversation, so thank you for all the extra hours that you put in to reviewing that table as well. We really appreciate that. Um, Dua, do you guys want to throw two Bobsworth in about any of the stuff we've talked about so far? Uh, thanks. I think um, one thing I guess worth just emphasizing is we are very aware um, about the impact on um, people's payments from some of these processes going wrong and we 
are trying to put in place as many processes as possible to minimise the risk that that uh, could potentially occur. Um, no process is foolproof, um, particularly with the thousands of moving parts and different um, employment services providers and organisations that are out there. But um, uh, you know, we are trying to put as many processes in as possible to, to minimise that risk. And um, as Dan mentioned, one of those things is uh, increased communication that is, is happening at the moment. Um, another, I guess, avenue available if um, processes do go wrong, we have the National Customer Service line where people can uh, phone up and if providers are not doing what they should, then that's an avenue where you can say, well, um, this is what the provider told me. It doesn't seem right. Uh, and that can be uh, adjusted by the um, outline. Should be able to um, get the, the number for that out. But I, I guess the other thing as well is just as a government department, um, you know, we regularly brief government on um, on policies. So if there are any um, systemic issues or um, case studies that you think would be helpful to sort of you know identify where processes are failing, um, we are very very happy to to receive those. Um, you know, I guess we can't fix problems that we don't know um, are occurring. Or um, you know, if, if if it's a you know issue with the individual provider or an individual um, process, or if it's something systemic, then both of those can allow us to come up with ways to to fix those issues, which is um, ultimately what we all want at the end of the day. Thanks, Andrew. And I think you know what we can do as well is publish that helpline number. Um, under the recording for this event on our website so that people have that. And certainly everyone has my email address, or if they don't, you can find it on our website, um, melanie.walker at aadc.org.au. It's pretty predictable. Um, if you have any of those case studies that you'd like to share with our colleagues, I'm really happy to pass those on after the event as well. Now, we might now go to Rebecca Lang, who's the Deputy Chair of my board and also the CEO of the Queensland Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies, or CUNADA. Um, Beck has been around in the sector for some time and has watched different iterations of these systems come through. Beck, what are you hearing from your members and what's your feeling after hearing those presentations and the answers so far? Yeah, thanks, Mel. Um, and thanks to everyone who did presentations today. Um, I learned a couple of new things, as I always do, when I engage with these systems. Um, and the thing that I, I think occurs to me is that um, we tend to um, do these communications processes and stops and starts. Like we, um, we had some really great engagement with um, the same group of departments, uh, I think it was back in 2017, um, when we first started to hear from members that um, the adjustments to the um, to the, uh, sorry, the demerits kind of process, which is still a really complicated process from my perspective, um, uh, was impacting on people accessing services. So, you know, we know that when people are experiencing difficulties around their substance use, the likelihood that they're going to get diagnosed with a substance use disorder or with drug dependence is fairly low because there's just not that many psychiatrists and addiction medicine specialists in the country. So for the vast majority of people who enter treatment and that includes particularly in this instance I think residential treatment they're not coming with a preloaded diagnosis nor access to the types of medical supports that would be able to get them that diagnosis so the the far more likely um, experience is the one where they're seeking to be excused from their mutual obligations for the purposes of being in treatment 
And so I'm pleased to hear that that should be a fairly straightforward process, but we hear from our members that it's not often. Um, and that, I think, comes down to those, I think they're now called employment service providers. Back in the day, they were called job service providers. It really only takes one person within one of those regional services to decide that this is how we're going to interpret the rules and it can create havoc in the treatment system. I mean, as Tony said, um, the sad fact is that we don't fully fund treatment services in this country. Why? I don't know. That's a conversation that I think is worth having. But as a result of that, we are, as a health system, reliant upon Centrelink payments being um, seamlessly um, continued in order to provide stable services for the community. Um, and I think that reflects the stigma associated with drug dependence, um, this idea that you should be contributing to the cost of your treatment because then you'll value it more. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, things to unpack. I think at this moment, what I'm pleased with is the clearly the huge amounts of goodwill that there are to um, minimising those experiences and maximising the seamlessness of the system. Um, and I wonder how we can build in some structures to make sure that that's, we're continuously kind of topping up the workforce on both sides of the fence about what the expectation is. Because, you know, we know these days people move around a lot. Um, and so we might provide a guideline and then a year later the, the workforce is sufficiently shifted that maybe there's no one left in one of those ESPs who understands that that guideline exists. Thanks, Beck. And I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. Andrew and Dan, I might just um, throw to you guys for a view on this because not being in the AOD sector, something that we understand is that for a long time um, and there was a report commissioned by the Department of Health and Ageing as it then was back a while ago that said that in any given year there's about 200,000 people engaged in drug and alcohol treatment but there's another 500,000 people who can't get in because of a lack of capacity in the system and that's what Beck's alluding to there. Sometimes you're going to have people who know they have a drug or alcohol problem, they're trying to engage with treatment, but they haven't been able to do it yet. Um, is there any thought about that at a policy level and what the implications of that are in terms of people's mutual obligation activities while they're waiting? Is it you guys who I should throw that to, or do you want to throw someone else? Yeah, that one is us. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I guess more broadly than um, alcohol and, and drug-related issues, uh, People on unemployment payments have a, a range of issues. Uh, you know, there's a significant number who might be, you know, at risk of homelessness or experiencing domestic violence, or um, uh, basically there's a just a, a huge gamut of, um, of issues that may be affecting uh, circumstances. But sometimes those result in exemptions from requirements. Uh, but particularly for the sort of more uh, long-standing issues where it's, it's less of a an acute I can't meet it meet any mutual obligations right now and more a uh, case of uh, my requirements need to be adjusted that is I guess a sort of a day-to-day -day, um, job for employment services providers to, to really like work with an individual and um, you know make sure that their requirements are appropriate and achievable and that's why um, in the compliance system that we we're talking about before there are so many sort of checkpoints in there to make sure that someone isn't facing penalties for um, not meeting requirements that are potentially inappropriate. Obviously the, the goal is to make sure the requirements are appropriate from the outset um, 
and have those conversations with the person so like um you know what are your circumstances what are your goals how how do we get there um but historically uh there's been quite a, a lot of issues of people not disclosing issues that are affecting their ability to meet requirements until um they start to interact with the compliance system and so that's why uh, a lot of those checkpoints are are built in so that they're not facing lasting financial penalties before they're um, really, I guess, uh, prompted to uh, again disclose that information. So I would say it is a, a pretty um, core and constant uh, policy consideration for us, both with regard to alcohol and drug uh, related issues, but also um, much more broadly for issues affecting people's capacity, uh, mental. Uh, um, um, mental illness, um, disability generally, um, yeah, whole, whole range of factors feed into that. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you had anything to add to that. Uh, uh, thanks, Andrew. Only, only that um, pro providers do have the discretion to adjust requirements um, based on their knowledge of the person's circumstances. If it's unreasonable for them to meet requirements, they can adjust them. Um, uh, so they're not necessarily um, granting, um, well, having an exemption granted per se, but for all intents and purposes, if they're aware that the person cannot meet their requirements uh, for for one reason or another, and um, we expect the providers to uh, adjust, temporarily adjust their requirements under those circumstances. Yeah, and actually just building on what um, Dan said too, also a huge amount of discretion in determining if someone has a, a good reason for not meeting those requirements if they've previously been set and then additional information comes out. I think that's or really that's change that And also, Andrew, this helpline that you're talking about, because I think what I'm getting from the questions is that everything you're saying sounds good, but the experience of that where the rubber breaks the road doesn't, like the, the, the operationalisation of the policy doesn't always match what you guys are saying in terms of the policy intent. So having that ability to ring a helpline and not job, but to point out when perhaps a provider isn't adhering to that the, the spirit of the policy, I think gives people an extra check or back check and balance. And we will publish that helpline on our website after this event. Um, yeah, excellent. there's definitely some cases where, I mean, because there's so many providers, there's going to be some where a particular individual is not doing um, what they, they should be, not following the policy. I'm so absolutely calling that number uh, is the, the right thing to do. I think that's great. And we've answered quite a lot of the questions um, in the discussion that we've had so far, but let me just go to some of these audience questions um, with some specific examples. So just what we were talking about there in terms of that discretion and temporary exemptions or allowing people to have, you know, some flexibility around that mutual obligation, a specific issue that's been brought up is around relapse. So we know that in many instances, um, drug dependence is a chronic relapsing disorder. So someone might be doing well for a while and then they have a bit of a stumble, but it doesn't mean necessarily that they need to go on the DSP and they won't be good soon. Um, does that discretion that you're talking about extend to those relapse or lapse scenarios? It, it does, absolutely. Um, requirements need to be adjusted for uh, circumstances at the time. So if someone uh, does relapse, then those um, requirements should be adjusted. Uh, the same rule about not about Centrelink not being able to grant exemptions for reasons wholly or predominantly due to 
program the whole misuse does apply as well to, to relapse. So it's a, a case of adjusting requirements rather than exempting from requirements altogether. Excellent. So just going back over some of the points that we've made before, there's one question here that speaks about how in remote communities it's extremely hard and challenging for participants in full-time AOD residential rehab to focus on recovery and trying to work um, on their requirements while they're having mutual obligation requirements. Is it as simple as residential rehabs just informing someone that someone is in treatment? Is that it? Because going back to what Tony was saying, if it's as simple in terms of mutual obligation um, exclusion as being able to go, someone is here, they're doing this, they'll be here for this long. If it's that simple, who do people tell so that everyone who needs to know knows? Yes, so that, in that case, they should um, contact the person's employment services provider um, or if they're in digital services, then it's the digital services contact centre. And in that case, uh, requirements should be um, fully met by that treatment participation. Uh, there should be no other requirements on the person for the period. And then we jump mm. to the helpline if it doesn't work, right? That's right. Can no, I just ask, do, do, they need, do they need a doctor's certificate or medical certificate for that? Uh, no medical certificate should be required, just um, uh, time of treatment participation. Okay. And I just comment that we, we do do that, um, depending on the, which I think has been alluded to already, depending on the employment service is what response you get, depending on the individual worker is what response you get. There's a huge amount of stigma and you just have to get that one person who has a problem with anybody who may um, have an AOD uh, issue and their attitude can be, you know, really discriminatory and they, they're not helpful. They don't want to help and they're certainly not going to give somebody an exemption because, you know, their attitude is why should you because you're a drug addict or you're an alcoholic and, and this is what we come up against. It was good to hear that, you know, there is going to be some education of job network providers but it's a real issue for us and there's so many of them now since they were given this power in I think 2018 so many new ones popped up and it is very difficult now um you know to try and you can't guarantee which job network that your your client is with you can't, it's not easy to move so like we have some that are really supportive others that are just shocking to work with but you can't just say to the client oh you know go to this person because it's not that easy to move job work net, network providers either so it, it's it's the stigma i think often and it, it, that might be the individual not necessarily the organization so i think there's a lot of education needed I think that's an important point and something that our colleagues can take away. But in the interim, I think it's great and we need to advertise as broadly as possible this helpline that people can ring so that when they have that experience, there is a third party that can intervene. Um, I think that's our, our answer in the short term. Now, in terms of helplines, so this one might be one for DSS or Services Australia. This is another question, but around DSP um, applications. Is there a helpline or something like that that individual social workers, caseworkers can ring to talk through a client's individual needs and the assistance um, 
whether they're eligible for DSP or whether Job Seeker is a better course of action and which way to go in terms of which payment is most appropriate. Um, if you've got a client and you're not sure whether DSP is applicable or whether you should be seeking temporary exemption from Job Seeker mutual obligations, who are you going to call about that? Someone from DSS or Services Australia, can you answer that question? I, I think it might be better for um, more of a Services Australia one. Um, yeah, um, the, we, um, we don't have a, a dedicated phone line for, for that particular sort of circumstance. I mean, but if you're talking about somebody who's, who's acting as a, an advocate, nominee, support person, mm -hmm. um, um, there is, they, they can certainly ring the normal, um, like the disability line of 132717. Um, where that, that's the same line as, as uh, customers would call. Um, so and that, obviously that that can be you know it, it can be busy sometimes. So we, we are well aware of that. But uh, yes, it's um, at this stage we don't have a like a dedicated third party mm. phone entry point. If that's what you're asking, is that uh, understood the question? But we we can definitely help people who just contact through the um the number. If if of course if, if they're wanting to talk about um you know um <clears throat> circumstances, we'd have to do with authority and um uh, permission to inquire and that sort of thing. But just depends on the nature of the advice being given out. Thank you. I think this question that we've got here is a little bit different from some of the others, and I'm conscious that we're nearly on time, so I'm going to throw this one in. It talks about how it's common for people engaging with alcohol and other drug services to have limited access to um, telephones and internet, so we're talking about a digital divide issue and I guess issues around poverty more broadly. So when they're calling providers at their appointed time through a phone that they've borrowed from someone um, and then they can't get through, it impacts on their ability to comply with mutual obligation activities. Have you guys um, had any thoughts about how we deal with that um, for clients that are particularly marginalised and disadvantaged in terms of ensuring that um, the communications they need to engage with are accessible? Uh, so... While they're in residential rehab, they should not have any requirements. No appointments with providers. Um, essentially, nothing apart from the treatment itself. Um, the only contact um, they should be making is to, to let um, their provider know that they've, they've entered um, residential rehab. And um, like I mentioned earlier, um, the facility can contact on their behalf um, to let the provider know. Um, if they're... Uh, any issues around that, if the provider isn't reducing the requirements and is insisting on um, additional requirements, then uh, the National Customer Service Line, which is within the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations, um, can be contacted. And that goes for people that are in, um, in disability employment services or Workforce Australia um, services. Um, and the NCSL, sorry, that's short for National Customer Service Line, they, they will uh, take that up with the provider if, uh, if anything needs to be rectified. Thank you. And just because we're just about dead on time, I'm going to sneak one last question in. But we will provide um, the information. We'll put the presentations up on the website. We'll also provide these numbers that have been referred to by our colleagues 
in this and any handy links that they think might be helpful, we'll put up on the AADC website under the recording of this event as well. And just one last sneaky present um, question here because it's a bit different to the others that we've got so far and it relates to the different mutual obligation activities that might be applicable for people on DSP versus job seeker. So it goes a little bit to the the difficulties in dealing with job providers, but what's the difference? Can one of you um, talk us through what is the difference between the mutual obligation activities that are applicable for people on the DSP versus the requirements for someone that are currently on Job Seeker? Who wants to take that one? Last one, I promise. Melanie, I can just um, speak on behalf of DSP and just say that um, rehabilitation programs count um, as mutual obligations for DSP purposes. In terms of the, the broad um, difference between uh, mutual obligation requirements for the different payments, they are very different. Um, so they're legislatively entirely separate. Um, the mutual obligations for job seeking youth allowance, training payment and special benefit, uh, they all have the targeted compliance framework apply if they um, aren't met. And the sort of a, the scope in the legislation is, is very general. It's just about uh, movement towards employment and then the sort of a, the broader policy of um, participation in employment services sets um, what a person's specific requirements are. And, and usually that is a um, requirement to look for work, meet a, a points target and the like, whereas, um, and DSS, correct me if I'm wrong, for DSP, um, those uh, H under 35 might have a requirement to meet one activity, but what that activity is, is also pretty general and then um, may involve requirement to participate in employment services. So uh, this is a, a bit of a, um, a actually difficult question because it does sort of go across uh, different departments, but broadly that is the uh, distinction between the, the payments. Unless DSS want to jump in and add to that, can I can I just add a, a note? Is that all right? Um, just sort of saying, just for DSP, and I'll just to add to what Nathan um, was saying. But most most people on DSP don't have uh, don't need to meet participation requirements. It's only if you if you've got um, work capacity assessed at, at, at least eight hours a week. Um, and um, so, but if you do, it's it's sort of a, it's quite a different. Um, uh, we you generally can choose the type of activity that you want to do. So, for example, you're not um, if you if you prefer to do something like well, it just has to be a work focused activity. So it doesn't mean that <clears throat> DSP customers are like forced to participate in DES or Workforce Australia or anything like that. So it is it is much it's sort of a, a much lighter touch regime than um, <clears throat> than mutual obligations for other job seekers. Yeah. Thanks, Don. And I think we're going to wind up because we are slightly over time. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming along this afternoon and participating in this. As I've said, we're going to put the presentations and some supplementary information up on the website afterwards. And I think I'd just like to finish um, by sharing something that's come in on the Q&A, which I think is less of a question but more of a statement and goes to that conversation that we are opening up with DSS Endurance Services Australia and how we'd like to continue that conversation going forward. And it, the question is around employment providers' awareness of what happens in AOD residential rehabilitation. So the question that we've got is, do they understand 
do the employment providers, are they aware that we do work therapy skills, we do relationship skills, we do cooking, we do a whole heap of stuff in AOD residential rehabilitation beyond the actual AOD clinical treatment intervention. And I think that's something worth thinking about in a policy way going forward in terms of what people are actually getting out of this. And perhaps there's a way for these systems to interact more closely with the AOD residential service system um, because people are doing a heap of stuff when they're in AOD resi rehab. And perhaps there's more of a, a closer link that we can provide with that employment pathway for people who are leaving AOD services going forward. So not a question, just an observation and something we might want to think about going forward. But I'd really like to thank our colleagues from DSS, DUA and Services Australia. You guys aren't in the health field and we really appreciate you coming along to learn more about the challenges that are facing our sector. And I'd also like to thank Craig and Tony and Beck for coming along and being on the panel and sharing their experiences from the work that they've done today as well. So we don't see this as the end of the road. We see this as the start of a conversation. And certainly as AADC, we've been delighted, in really delighted in how your agencies have been willing to talk to us about our particular issues. We know you get spoken to a lot of the time by people with numerous issues. But thank you for engaging in ours and for being so thoughtful about how we can achieve better outcomes for the communities that we serve going forward. So thanks, everyone. And we will see you at our next online event. And in the meantime, we'll continue the conversation via the website. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.